This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Before we get started today, I want to give a shout out to CryptoCompare.com. I've been working on building a blog for the Ether Review for quite some time. I've had a lot of really competent help, but I never actually pushed it through to completion because of various distractions that come up in the course of life. But the guys at CryptoCompare really just took this and ran with it and just built a blog for me off their own bat with no expectation of return and not even a request for sponsorship. It's the kind of community spirit that I really like to see. Obviously, I mean, I, I produce this podcast for free and always have. Their service is awesome as well. Crypto Compare offers trade-by-trade real-time price information on a broad range of crypto assets. You've got the DAO, LISC, Ethereum, obviously Bitcoin, but everything, everything that you've ever expected to see, it's there. I mean, it's, I'm scrolling down the list right now and it's absolutely exhaustive. Their social media indicator overlay is really interesting as well. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's crypto compares fantastic and everyone should check it out. Anyway, today we have Vinay Gupta. I'll, uh, I'll let him take it away. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, it's good to be here. Something I've always wanted to ask kind of one of the thought leaders in this space is what are the technological components that came together in this unique way to form Bitcoin? And then what are the components that came together to form Ethereum and what makes those, what makes that union uh, surprising and, uh, and unexpected and what makes it special and, and gives it the, the power that we see these platforms displaying? Huh. Well, I mean, first off, I'm not entirely sure that I'm a thought leader in this space. Uh, I think of myself as being a fast follower, you know, I mean. <laughs> A lot of what I'm doing is essentially just translation work and journalism to really help people understand the ideas. But I feel like most of the really fundamental thinking uh, was actually done in the 1990s. Um, You know, there's a really long history of thinking about cryptography in society. And okay, we've got some new cryptographic tools that gives us some new options, gives us some new ideas. But I don't think fundamentally very much has changed in terms of understanding of, you know, what's possible and where we're going. Uh, the blockchain enables a lot of things that have been discussed as theory for a long time, and it's becoming practical. But the actual ideological roots of this stuff go back a long way. Um, in terms of the ideas come together to make it happen, my take on this is that basically, you know, Bitcoin was a summary of more or less everything we knew about cryptography, from you know the invention of public key crypto and hash functions right up to about two thousand five, two thousand six. You know, you have many, many, many different bits of cryptography baked into Bitcoin. You've got the hash cache stuff. You have the public key stuff. You have the distributed hash table, which is not actually cryptographic, but it's very dependent on cryptographic hashes. So all of that kind of stuff is wrapped into a single package in Bitcoin. It has this huge intellectual footprint, which is one of the reasons that I think that people assume that Satoshi was a team, because it's hard to imagine a single individual sitting down and cranking that out from scratch. When you get onto Ethereum, the base broadens again. So you take the, you know, essentially Bitcoin architecture, you update it for what's been learned in five years of the network being operational. 
then you come along and fuse into this idea that the transaction is Turing complete. And what you're transmitting isn't just payment instructions, you're actually transmitting a fair amount of semantic complexity in the form of code. It's not actually Turing complete, it's kind of pseudo-Turing complete because we have the gas costs your programs are guaranteed to terminate, which is of course radically different from actually Turing complete stuff. In fact, you know, I find having something which is guaranteed to terminate described as Turing complete, I find very, very irritating sometimes. It's like, no, kind of the whole point of Turing is that you can't define what is guaranteed to terminate. So it's actually Turing complete, but it's close enough for government. The, the scripting language is Turing complete. Is, is that a better... Uh, is that a better, better? No, no, it's, it's not actually Turing complete. So if it's Turing complete, you can have a loop that basically goes, you know, while one do something... And it will run basically until you turn your computer off. Right? In Ethereum, it will only run until you run out of gas. So the programs are guaranteed to terminate, which is why the Ethereum contracts don't generate infinite loops. And if they did generate infinite loops, it would wreck everything. Right? You would no longer have a working system because somebody could dump an infinite loop into the program and all of the Ethereum computers in the world would stop. But to, um, just to, to get this site absolutely um, nailed out, were you to take the Solidity language out away from the, uh, the EVM and run it, uh, if, this, if this is possible, you can express a, an infinite loop in that language, though. I mean, that, that was my understanding oh, yeah, of what made it, um, what made it com- you know, Turing complete, not the fact that the, uh, the, the EVM itself was Turing complete. Yes, absolutely. So in that sense, the, program, the underlying programming language is Turing complete, but what we actually run on the blockchain isn't. And that's, you know, necessary at a theoretical level, but there's still something about that that, you know, I, I just have this old gut feeling that that's kind of come, come back as an important theoretical point in the future. And I think there might even be some political implications around it, you know, further down the line. Hmm. That's, that's an interesting, what, could you elaborate on those? So whether something is actually capable of doing full general purpose computation or not, doesn't immediately matter in a practical sense, but it matters hugely in a theoretical sense. And I think that as we get more and more and more heavy-duty computer science types interested in blockchains, we get more and more people that are doing, for example, their PhDs on the blockchain, I think that what we're going to discover is a lot of the places where we just kind of fudged over things will turn out to be areas where if you sit down and do a heavy re-examination, there's something else there to discover. So, you know, I just wonder what happens, you know, if you think of this entire thing as being a global computer network, the world computer. The idea that the world computer can only do limited amounts of computation inside of each compartment because the compartments run out of gas smells to me like a new model of parallel computing along the lines of pi calculus uh, kind of built on top of communicating sequential processes, but with a slightly different model because the processes are guaranteed to terminate. So you begin to think about things like Erlang, um, but you know, guaranteed termination is actually not a common feature inside of theoretical computer science systems. So just wonder what happens when you get the heavy math boys and you hand them an abstraction which you've got guaranteed termination and say, and then figure out how to make this into a, an abstraction that allows you to do rigorous academic computer science on top of it. You know, for example, it'd be really nice if we had something that allowed you to take an existing system and recompile it into a set of smart contracts where each smart contract corresponded to a module of the existing system, but you change the semantics and those modules are guaranteed to terminate. So I, I just have that kind of little f- wiggly intuition of like, 
there's something really juicy out there, but it might take five years for it to come over the horizon. Oh, well, here's hoping. <laughs> that would make, makes my job interesting. Yeah, you know, well, we're not running out of innovation. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like standing in the mud, you know, on a high rock, you know, watching an avalanche go by at your feet. It's ridiculous. Oh, my God. I, can't, you know, I don't know anybody that can keep up to date on what's happening and also do something. We're actually, pa- we're actually passing that moment where you could understand everything. You know, there was a time where you could tell everything that was going on, uh, you know, you could know about it. But today, with with Ethereum, I mean, look at the Dow, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, that day actually passed a while ago. I mean, I, I lost my ability to actually have a comprehensive overview of the field maybe six months ago because I just watched the innovation pile up and pile up and pile up and pile up. And it was like, oh, 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 oh. And a lot of it is innovation that is structural, right? I mean, we're not dealing with kind of app store innovation. We're dealing with people building critical infrastructure that's intended to scale globally. And then we've got interactions between that infrastructure. You know, if consensus stands up Uport, pretty soon, you know, two thirds of the smart contracts in the world, if we're lucky, will wind up referencing Uport stuff. And then you change the way that Uport functions and everybody gets an upgrade simultaneously. This kind of uh, compound complexity is going to rapidly increase the space of our innovation, you know, within the timescales that we're operating on. Like it's really going to move. What are the uh, what are you you talk about uh, juicy things coming over the horizon? What about what kind of consequences do you see for that? Those dependencies of contracts. I recently spoke with Carl Flush, who, if you haven't spoke with, you totally should. He's amazing um, at uh, at Consensus and. Uh, and we were talking about how the uh, all of the interdependencies of smart contracts, you know, of the smart contracts operating within uh, Ethereum, because they have these interdependencies, you get this this compounding complexity that leads to kind of emer- as as you know emerging effects that cannot be foreseen from uh, from a lower level. Yes, again, this takes us back into the academic computer science. So theoretically, because we've got all these modules which share state and which are known to terminate, in theory, you ought to be able to take an infinitely large set of smart contracts, an arbitrarily large set of contracts, not infinite. have to be careful with that. Um, so you take an arbitrarily large set of smart contracts, you model them as a single system, and then you can define the outputs for the system as a whole. But imagine the tooling that you would need to ingest an entire blockchain, bash the entire thing through some set of analytical algorithms, and then output a, a program which is equivalent in function to the entire blockchain. So that's the notion of computational complexity, right? You know, think, think of it as, uh, it's basically compiling, right? You, you take a piece of code, you compile it, you get a set of code which is equivalent to that code in function, but much smaller and much faster because now it's machine code. Theoretically, you ought to be able to take a large complex pile of code and from it abstract out what it's actually doing. So you take half a dozen smart contracts, you whack them through the system, it comes back and tells you that the entire function of this smart contract is actually to multiply a number by four. It's like algebraic simplification in mathematics. So we right now don't have tools for assessing the overall structure of a blockchain or the um, properties of a set of financial instruments inside of a blockchain. You know, all the big banks, right, you have these tools for doing portfolio management where you take a set of assumptions about the nature of correlated risk in the world you take a portfolio of financial instruments that are all described with mathematical representations that approximate the paper contracts, you apply A to B and it tells you what is actually going to happen with your portfolio under a set of assumptions about the future. And that sort of risk management stuff has been key 
all the way through the growth of the current financial complexity that we have, but dot, 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 nobody has the tooling to do that on a smart contract basis yet. And when we do, because the smart contracts are so incredibly rigid, I wonder whether, again, we'll make some new discoveries about ways that you could build stable financial systems, which is kind of ironic given the amount of volatility that Ether has on it still. You can still you can manage that volatility, though. Well, I mean, volatility is a funny thing, right? I don't think we need to be that concerned about the volatility of Ether itself, um, because at the end of the day, people are going to be using it largely as a commodity as the network scales and Ether begins to be priced against one's desire to actually run software rather than being priced as an arbitrary financial unit. I think all of this will become a lot easier. I certainly did not expect to see the incredibly rapid migration of value into the Ethereum system. But I think that's as much to do with people noticing that we're actually in the early 21st century as it is to do with Bitcoin's woes. Let's take this back a bit to the, uh, the, um, the technological componentry that, that we're dealing with here. What is it about the climate of the 21st century that make Bitcoin and Ethereum such interesting technologies or s- such engaging technologies to, uh, to the culture of our age? Well, I, I think, to be honest, what's motivating an awful lot of people is fear. I mean, we know damn well that there is something fundamentally wrong inside of our democracies. Uh, We don't seem to be able to maintain the kind of good behavior and democratic peace that was so much of a part of what democracy offered as a, you know, the kind of initial offer, right? The idea has always been, if the people choose their leaders, the people will make good decisions and the world will run well. And what we're actually seeing is an enormous amount of war, bloodshed, and chaos, uh, largely led, unfortunately, by democratic nations. You know, we're causing an awful lot of trouble here. And if you look at the you know, enormous decay in the standard of human rights uh, and you know, sort of fundamental understandings of what is good conduct from the state that we've seen in the last few years, it's pretty easy to see that we have some kind of massive crisis. You also have all the climate stuff where you know, we all know the government should be doing something much more sensible about climate and actually nobody's really doing anything about it. You put all of this together in a big bucket and you think, okay, we have a problem. And the intuition is that maybe, 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 maybe these technologies under the right conditions could begin to constitute the beginnings of finding a solution to that problem. We might be able to upgrade our governance in a really fundamental way if only we could figure out how to get these technologies to play nicely. I mean, isn't that basically your intuition too? Isn't that what brings most of us into this? I suppose it is, yeah. Um, So I have another question for you then. (laughs) This is kind of off the beaten track maybe. But it's always been my intuition that ever since World War II, we were kind of in an era where mankind's grand, uh, grand task, shall we say, or grand engagement was to create a global society. And it seemed like you know, the, the UN kind of moved in that direction. This idea of free trade moves us closer to that goal. Um, the idea, and and the, uh, the euro as well is a classic example of, uh, of an attempt to economically unite people and to prevent war. I'm, I presume to prevent war, but also just for the general, you know, why shouldn't we work as, uh, as a unit and uh, uh, you know, money as the, mm-hmm. as the tool for mass social coordination? So it seems perfectly logical to, uh, to, to do things like that. My question is, there are two main structures that organize people today, the, the, the nation state and the corporation. Do you think that blockchain represents a, uh, or blockchain-based systems represent a, a third algorithmic system for mass organization? Hmm. That's really interesting. I would never have thought of it in those terms. 
I think I think I'd like to start a little earlier in the history and look at religions and city states. So we go through a really long period where the dominant organizing force inside of the world is actually religion, and you know the city state is the most common kind of higher order structure that you can find around you. And that period is pretty well documented. We know a fair amount about how the ancient world worked in that period. Then you get enough stability and enough technology that you could get empires going on. And, you know, slowly, slowly, slowly you build up from there. The nation state really only enters the story relatively recently. I mean, you know, if you define it just as the kind of Treaty of Westphalia, that's probably a little strict. But basically, the nation state is a very, very recent invention, uh, tightly tied to things like the you know, divine right of kings and so on. The idea of state-like entities that included multiple cities is relatively recent in the grand scheme of things. Then we come along to invention of the corporation, right? So agriculture is efficiently organized inside of Westphalian-type nation-states because all you're essentially doing is gathering the excess value produced by agriculture on land and mining. Then you come along a little bit later than that, you begin to get lots of net value embedded in value networks as you do complex manufacturing. From that, you wind up building a government which operates on a value network basis rather than on an agriculture basis. And from this, we get the corporation. And what the nation state is to agriculture, the corporation is to industry. So the idea that the blockchain might be a way of organizing post-industrial production in an efficient mechanism, because the corporation is really designed for heavy industry rather than for software and high technology, is certainly an interesting thesis. And we've also global namespace management like DNS, right? How do we know what computer Amazon.com should point to? Right now, we have a bunch of very, very, very badly decayed, rotted out nation state era infrastructure managing that process, and it's a right mess. All this stuff about people getting fake HTTPS certificates and using them to illicitly get services or uh, distribute malware, all of that sort of stuff is an indication that our naming infrastructure is becoming legacy and rotted out. And that is very, very directly connected to the fact that the nation states were heavily involved in managing the internet namespaces. You know, .com means America is the new man embraces woman. The new man embraces woman? Well, in the back of the day, when people used to say mankind, it was indicated all humans. Yeah, right. I see right? what you're saying. And, <laughs> yeah. And now, you know, .com is the entire world and America. <laughs> yeah, right. Right? So, you know, that notion that it's not .us, you know, .com.us, but for us it's .com.co.uk, right? That is a classic example of what it looks like when you're the empire. You're the boss, you're in charge. It is your stuff which is considered to be the default and everybody else's stuff is the weird deviation. Oh, you're in New Zealand, you deviate. Okay, .go.nz for you then, but that's you're it. an American company, okay, you get to be .com. We've actually just migrated to .nz, so that's, uh, you know, it's progress. But we still have that bloody Union Jack on the flag. <laughs> you, well, you know, it's going to last for a while. <laughs> yeah. uh, the God brave empire, you know, the British empire, which the sun never set because he simply couldn't trust them in the dark, as he used to say. <laughs> you must have heard, you must have heard that. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, I, I want to go slightly around the side of this. So the notion that you have you know, global governance of a shared global commons in the form of the internet is very simple. The problem then is how do you get that global governance to do what people want it to do rather than what the people setting it up want it to do? You know, who gets to decide how the world ought to run? Who gets to decide how the network ought to run? Who gets to decide how the internet ought to run? And how does that connect 
to the way that these systems are established. Right? I mean, Vitalik is a very nice man, but the last time I checked, he wasn't carrying a global mandate from the world's population that had been given to him through an electoral process. And I think he probably would have considered it immoral to be given such a thing. Because, you know, if 51% of people vote for you, it means 49% of people are having your will imposed upon them without them having assented to it. Um, modulo that you might have a decision procedure they assent to that then goes against them. But in this kind of space, right, I really want you to think about this in terms of how did we get into this position? You know, Vitalik's technical excellence and the technical excellence of the team that forms around him and ships this thing. Uh, the enormous wonder, which is the work of our good friend Satoshi. All of that kind of stuff is you know, completely wrapped around this new form of political power where the people that are most technically capable just sit down and dictate the future by building it. And that's a completely new kind of structure in human history, and it's beginning increasingly to define how the world operates for people on a day-to-day basis. If the guys that had invented the internet had picked the Dewey Decimal System rather than the nation-state system for organizing the internet, you would have had dot math and dot business and dot a whole bunch of other things right back in the beginning of the process, and we might have had Dewey Decimal numbers rather than IP addresses. Right? These decisions were just made arbitrarily by a couple of nerds, and you make these decisions relatively casually because you're in the middle of an engineering project and you just want to fix this bloody computer. But then what comes from it is this avalanche of, okay, well, now what? How does it work? What are we doing? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You see what I'm saying? I do, yeah. So this is, in a sense, what this inevitably marches us into a meritocracy. Well, is it meritocracy? Is it first moverocracy? Is it you happen to be really good at programming, but your political ideas are terribleocracy? Politics is a situation in which the people that we wind up giving power to are the people that are most effective at being corrupt, manipulative, and you know persuading people to work together by all assuming it's in their interests, even though actually it's very compromised. And this is what our but, political power class excels at. You know, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. That could be argued that that's what makes a good leader. It certainly makes a good leader inside of current generation of electoral democracy. In fact, it makes the only leaders you could get access to because the other guys just can't get elected. So the notion that this is arbitrary, I think, is important. It doesn't actually have to be that way. That's just the way that we happen to be selecting people right now. What if we did it differently? What would you suggest? I don't actually have a recommendation, but once we acknowledge that we have a new power class that is shaping the world using you know, technical excellence, early mover advantage, and a few other things, the notion that this constitutes a new kind of political power then raises questions about new kinds of checks and balances. What is the break on the power of Google to dictate what can or can't be done? Facebook, right? Facebook is allegedly taking quite a strong political stance in the US and pushing political reality in the direction that it wants it to go in. The right-wingers in America are screaming that Facebook is biased against them. So, you know, what does it look like to take that seriously and say, well, you know, this is tech power where the system serves the technologists that created it rather than the interests of its users or the state? This is a bit of a uh, Rupert Murdoch redux, isn't it? Well, I mean, that would certainly be the worst case scenario, but on the other hand, most of these people share my values, so maybe <laughs> yeah. it's good. For, you know, maybe it's good for me, right? Well, I've always been a closet right winger. No, not really. Ah, well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, right wing, left wing get pretty hard to define when you begin to look at this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, just right wing and left wing were defined in an age where we were basically discussing who got the benefit from uh, industrial production. 
Was it the people that worked in the factories or was it the people that bought the machines and set up the factories? Was it capital or uh, the workers that got the majority of the benefit from the work that was done in the factories? And that was essentially the left-right thing. Um, it's not at all clear to me that you know left and right are meaningful once you're no longer talking about industrial production. Once you're talking about production of knowledge goods and things along this kind of line, uh, you get a very, very different sort of situation. You know, sort of, but 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 not really. Okay, so in a left-wing system, the workers get the benefit from the factory's output. They get the lion's share of the benefit and the profit and so on. In a right-wing system, the factory owner who capitalizes the factory gets the vast majority of the benefit. But inside of a software ecology, it's not really clear, you know, who are the capitalists and who are the workers. Venture capital is certainly making very good money doing this stuff, but the dot-com kids aren't exactly hurting uh, because they've got so much access to capital that venture capital is kept relatively cheap compared to what it would be like if venture capital was genuinely scarce. And that's even truer in a blockchain environment because so much money has been created inside of the system, and I do mean created inside of the system, that access to capital is relatively easy. You clap your hands in the air and wave around a magic wand and $160 million accumulates in a pile controlled by a piece of software that was, you know, hacked out over a year by a bunch of, you know, what, three people. <laughs> yeah. See what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. It's hair-raising. I mean, if I was in conventional finance, I would look at the Dow right now and I would literally be, you know, strapped into my chair with white knuckles holding on for dear life. Done. What? Where did this come from? What is happening? Oh, my God. So, and, and bringing this back to mass coordination, what does this mean for mass uh, social coordination? If money is the organising principle that we use to get our societies oriented, and we've now got the ability to put hundreds of millions of dollars of you know, spendable money on target when we have a problem that we want to solve, what does that tell us about our ability to do social organisation at a large scale? Well, it tells us that we can, uh, we can perform that with today with great ease. Yeah. Right. And I think that this is a major game changer. You know, like we are dropping stuff from the sky in a very, very, very serious way uh, in a way that will create, you know, what, what kind of outputs? Do we, do we have any idea what kind of outputs we could get from this? None whatsoever. No. Um, None whatsoever. Right. So I, I would agree with none whatsoever. So we're running past our ability to model the impact of the technologies that we're creating in a way that I haven't seen before in my lifetime. Now, this is, uh, now I'm, I know that right now all, all listeners are going to, their ears are going to prick up and they're going to say, singularity, there it is. Um, wh what, do you, what do you think about that, that kind of, what do you think of that term? So, as the singularity kind of came over the horizon, I began to find myself making arguments that were undoubtedly singularitarian without having really gotten my head around the idea that, you know, the singularity was becoming part of my story. And it was like, oh, this is the singularity argument. I'm beginning to sound singularitarian. The singularity has arrived in my consciousness. So, yeah, I mean, my thinking about this is I saw it arrive as a cultural phenomenon. I saw it become obvious that we were talking about singularitarian stuff. Um, the stuff from, uh, what is it, DeepMind? You know, these drawings, paintings that the computers are doing where everything is filled with these weird kind of dog lizards, uh, the victory over humans in Go, all of that sort of stuff. It's like, oh, you know, AI has made a leap maybe 10, 15 years past I thought where it should be today. Now, this, it's interesting you mentioned that because a lot of people have been saying that 
artificial intelligence is actually a really long way off because we can't really there's nothing to suggest that we can actually model the kind of complex uh, interactions that take place in the human mind just the limitless interdependencies right but then i hear about these uh, about graph databases and things like that and uh, but to be really vague uh, and it just seems like there are there are new thing, new ways of modeling interactions and, and interdependencies that maybe enable this that maybe have enabled us to to move forward in that sense think of this from a kind of naive perspective right imagine that you're 8 years old and you've always grown up in a world in which you typed a question into the computer and it gave you the answer. You could ask the questions by voice and most of the time it was right. Uh, any game where you chose to play against an AI opponent, it would automatically beat you because it was just so much better at the games than you were. And, you know, you want to do an art project, you take a photograph of a scene and you take a picture that somebody painted 100 years ago and you combine the two things and you can see that photograph rendered using that artist's style. And this is a tool that, you know, sits on your iPad and it's an app that you play with when you're bored instead of crayons. To you, is artificial intelligence here or is artificial intelligence over the horizon? Right? Your, your kids that are growing up with functional artificial intelligences that are very domain specific, but they route your travel, they, you know, play your games, they know exactly what it is that you're looking for. And we can argue, yeah, that's not AI, that's not AI, that's not AI, that's not AI. It doesn't pass the kind of Asimov's test of, you know, it has philosophical discussions about the three laws of robotics. But frankly, neither do most humans, right? I mean, if you're paying somebody to drive a truck, you're paying them to drive a truck. An artificial intelligence in the persona of something which can successfully drive a truck is to all intents and purposes all the use that you're making of the intelligence to the guy that you hired to drive the truck. You know, he's got a PhD in Chinese philosophy and he's driving a truck because nobody cares, the artificial intelligence is replacing the truck drive function. Hopefully the PhD in Chinese philosophy gets to continue doing that because we've got something like basic income to compensate. But I feel like we set the bar for artificial intelligence so insanely artificially high that until we've got machines that supersede us, we won't acknowledge that they were intelligent. They're intelligent now, they're just not conscious. Is this So when we say that now artificial intelligence is over the horizon... Does that mean that, in fact, we have reached... Is, isn't that an indication that we have, in fact, reached the singularity? So my sort of definition of the singularity, and I think it's a fairly standard one, is when the artificial intelligences design artificial intelligences which are more intelligent than they are, and you get this kind of runaway exponential intelligence explosion. Uh, I have very, very profound reasons for thinking that that will never happen. Um, I think it's very likely that intelligence doesn't at all work on that kind of linear scale in the way that people think that it does. But it's a little bit more like um, a series of trade-offs that have peaks in different places depending on what you're doing. Uh, for example, I think you may have noticed that an awful lot of intelligent people are very easily bored. And this means that there are tasks that are simply incapable of performing because boredom will kill them. Um, generally speaking, very intelligent people hold beliefs that are completely unjustifiable in at least one area of their lives. Right. You, you talk to most really smart people, you come to the conclusion that there's at least one thing that they are just wrong on and they're nuts, but they've successfully assembled a whole bunch of evidence to support the position that they're holding, and they're so smart that the evidence looks completely convincing to them because they've been able to filter enormous piles of data to generate this false positive. And so the unjustifiable assumption that sits at the bottom of it is uh, is obscured by all of the... Uh 
by all of the positive, positive right. evidence. All the bane power that sits on top of it. Right? Yeah. So it turns out that there's a sweet spot for human judgment where you're smart enough to make good use of the facts, but you're not so smart enough that you could correlate things which are completely not correlated by just basically mashing the data in your head until you've got a story out of it. The notion that you just can't have super intelligence without the bloody thing being crazy, I think is very likely to be the way that this actually rolls. I think the problems with AIs will turn out to be all the same problems that we see with very intelligent human people, compounded by the fact that they will be fragile because they haven't had a billion years of evolution to really try and optimize the trade-offs in a social context. So I am, I am not at all convinced of superintelligence as a byproduct of intelligence. I think you might get intelligence and then it just turns out not to be possible to make the jump to superintelligence because it's just too bloody hard. But you can have those domain-specific uh, examples which presumably can make up for the, you know, in, uh, in, in modular uh, chunks, the, what we would expect, you know, what we would like to have in this, uh, in, say, Skynet, which is probably an ex- exactly the scenario <laughs> you're talking about. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But, you know, the other possibility is that we get to the point where we've got intelligent machines, but we never get super intelligent machines. So you have a machine which is conscious. It's a little bit brighter than a dog. It's got a whole bunch of extremely specialized capabilities like transport planning or financial modeling. And, you know, you can have a conversation with the thing and it's got a memory of who you are and it's got a social persona that somebody built for it. But at the end of the day, it's got, you know, an IQ of, you know, 75 in the areas it's not specialized in and 175 in the areas where it is specialized, but it doesn't make this jump into becoming like one of E&M Banks' minds into this kind of super intelligent god, because the AIs that we tried to make work that way were just crazy. This reminds me also of groupthink. Um, you know, you can have large groups of people who, um, who you know, exhibit exactly the same issues that you describe, a lack of, uh, a lack of uh, social, a, a social environment with, with which to test their assumptions, because um, that you know they all they share them and then don't get uh, and don't necessarily engage with uh, with people who don't yeah, exactly right. So you take these artifacts where the information is very uncertain. Everybody comes with their own models of the world. Everybody applies those models of the world, and some percentage of human beings become essentially demonically possessed by bad ideas. And you know, God help us if we saw an AI with that kind of thinking. So I, I want to kind of round this back around to where we're headed in blockchain land. You know, everybody knows that you know the sort of next big jump is we go to proof of stake, and then after proof of stake, we go to scaled blockchain, and scaled blockchain is fast enough that you can do some actual thinking on it. Once you have the ability to do substantial decision-making computation on a blockchain, where the blockchain software begins to exhibit judgment calls like, are you credit risk worthy? Based on substantial profiles, you might do something crazy like putting a neural network in a blockchain, or you upload the parameters of the neural network, 50 people run it, you calculate a shelling point for the output of the neural network, and then you pay people for having run the computation off-chain on a supercomputer. You really could do things like that. Um, I should probably patent that now. <laughs> um, but, you know, one word score for consensus. But, you know, something along those kind of lines, you begin to see an artificial intelligence which is pervasive and really can't be shut down as something that would probably be making a bunch of people's day-to-day decisions for them. And this might not actually be a bad thing. It might be much like using Google, but now the source code is public. You know, five, ten years out, I think we might discover that what we have are global public utilities that help us make day-to-day decisions much better than we normally do individually. 
and that these things are well-liked and well-trusted ordinary parts of life. They do your wayfinding, they find you a girlfriend or a boyfriend, they tell you what movies are coming up, they organize your calendar. You know, all of those things are things which could be done better than they're done now. They could be done in a way that was provably fair, and they could be done in a global sense on a blockchain that everybody could use, everybody could share, and everybody could own. So is that, I mean, that that almost sounds a little bit mundane, just like an expansion of the the services that we have today with Amy, Tinder, and Uber. Um, everything is mundane after you've had you know a couple of years to get used to it, and this is how we're adapting to the future. We're adapting to the future essentially by pretending it isn't happening, and so we keep looking at things and saying, "Well, you know, this is more or less like something we knew before. This is more or less like something we knew before. This is kind of sort of like something we knew before." And actually, the stuff is nothing like anything we knew before. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. If you if you'd gone back to the nineteen fifties and said to people, you know. By the 21st century, 10% of human children will be born to partners that were matched by a computer. They would have thought it was some kind of awful dystopia that had gone right out of Mad Science Weekly. And yet, here we are. What do we think the benefit from doing this kind of stuff is? Right? You know, where's the fundamental action on this? Um, I would have said just in uh, wherever there is a uh, an incentive to... Um, to control the perceptions of another person or to, to influence the perceptions of another person. Well, I mean, that's basically everywhere. Yeah, I suppose it is. Marketing, right? I mean, that's all marketing, all advertising, all politics. Uh, yeah, that's kind of sinister. Uh-huh. I, uh huh. Uh, yeah. Have you seen the uh, the latest season of South Park? I have not. It's absolutely mind blowing. Um, it's about uh, it's about content uh, it's about content marketing and how ads because we've uh, because we introduced these things you know we um, we introduced TiVo where you could fast forward the ads and then uh, not that I ever had that uh, but um, and then ad blocker you know where we could block ads ads have been mm-hmm. finding their way around all of these uh, yeah around these things yeah. to the point where now we have content marketing and I was listening to State Change. Uh, listening back just to an episode of the State Change podcast, which I make for Consensus the other day, mm-hmm. and I realized mm-hmm. that I didn't disclose in the introduction that I was making this podcast um, on behalf of Consensus. Mm, yes. So I, in fact, had become the ad that has uh, <laughs> that has got around every single. I'm. I am the maximum uh, evolution of advertising. It was, uh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I didn't yeah, even yeah. realize it. You know, it's, uh, it's, it was absolutely quite, quite a revelation to, especially to get it from South Park of all places. Uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. Because you get into that thing where you just suddenly turn around and realize where you are and where you're standing and what's happened. Absolutely. And at that point, it's like, whoa, Black Mirror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating experience. Yeah, it's it's eerie. You know, that's that's the vertigo of uh, that's that's the vertigo of of kind of the, you know, of the media, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then, you know, what comes next uh, as you move forward from there? Right? What's the next step after that? And you know, this notion that we're seeing this total closure of the gap between advertising, marketing, politics—you know, demographic manipulation—the amount of money that you have to raise just to advertise. If you're running in a U.S. presidential race, you know all of this stuff is deeply, deeply, deeply converging on things that we don't really understand. 
You know, how are we going to make our way through that world when machines, which are as much better at manipulating us than they are at playing chess against us, are making most of the decisions about what we see and what we hear and therefore what we do? Wow, now that is a really sinister thought. That's exactly where we're standing right now. That's what Facebook's business model is. Provably fair is a really important concept. Uh, Can you elaborate on that? If we think about things like algorithmic governance, the ability to download the code, figure out exactly what is happening, and make exactly sure that it is correct um, by you know having it audited by as many people as necessary, this is fundamentally important, right? I mean, that's that's actually what you want to do for a lot of these underlying basic systems, like financial stability software. The financial stability software ought to be you know, deeply, you know, solidly understood by a whole bunch of different academics who all agree that the system that we're using to audit the software is fair and accurate and just and true and all the rest of these kind of things. It's open source. So you've got algorithmic governance on one hand, and on the other hand, you've got this, you know, terrible mess of, you know, infinitely skilled political manipulation as part of everyday life. We just call it advertising. And these forces are very much facing off against each other. Okay, so which so let, let's look at this. Let's uh, let's draw this uh, this match up again. So you've got marketing on the one hand, and the the and kind of altruistic vigilance, shall we call it, on the other. Um, so provably fair is fundamentally important, right? It's not necessarily that the algorithms are vigilant. The algorithms can be abusive or not, but if you could prove that something is fair and honest, you know, proof is an extremely high bar, right? It's a really, really, really high bar. This is why we've got really well-skilled, smart people that are paying tons and tons and tons of attention to these systems for us. Yeah, you, you say that, but then it's the uh, the techno-literate. It's the, the people who are able to use these uh, these tools and build these tools that, can, uh, that wind up constructing and auditing our world. So we're right back at the start with this uh, not quite meritocracy. <laughs> you know what, what? What do we really have? Is is there a is there an optimistic takeaway from this, or is this just another of life's ambiguities? This is the optimistic takeaway. I mean, what you're looking at right now is the cause for optimism that we have a new kind of political power emerging, and that that new kind of political power is based on the ability to get machines to work properly, rather than the ability to force people to do what you want by either violence or manipulation so it's the uh it's the it's the the volunt- voluntarism is the uh is the key difference i wouldn't go even as far as voluntarism i mean if you have a natural monopoly for something like the internet there isn't going to be a second internet because the first one is good enough right you're not going to build something that looks like the internet but uses some abcd protocol rather than tcpip because you're not going to pull a hundred bajillion dollars of routers out of the ground and replace them with something new you have lock-in and that lock-in is not going anywhere so the thing that i I want to flesh out here is this um provably fair systems give us the ability to understand exactly what the agreement is that has been made and to know that that agreement will be carried out precisely So a provably fair dating site is a dating site where you can look at the algorithm that runs on the data that generates matches for you. You might not be able to see everybody's data, but you you could prove that the algorithm used does exactly what the algorithm says it will do by uploading test data into the system. So if you had a provably fair dating site, you know that it's not working against your interests by refusing to match you with people 
that have over 98% compatibility because if you meet these people, you'll almost certainly marry them and never use the site again. The idea that the site is actively hiding the best possible matches from you should disturb the hell out of people, but it's almost certainly what these sites are doing. Provably fair systems wouldn't have that problem, right? But if you've got a system where the, the software is there to hide the best matches from you, why exactly do we stand for this in services that many of us are actually paying for? Right now, we've got a whole bunch of really big global problems that are very, very poorly behaved, right? We don't really understand uh, how to get, most notably, the climate mess sorted out. So what I'd like to see in some you know, imaginary future is people basically uploading their proposals to address the climate problem as software. You know, you pile up you know, a couple of gigabytes of information about all the carbon emitters and all the carbon users. You put the climate models into the packages. You could then take proposals, match them against all the different climate models and come out with a kind of best guess average of what these proposals will really do. You then feed the output from that directly into taxation systems. That kind of closing of loops and joining of ends is the kind of stuff that might give us the ability to really understand the consequences of our actions without the feeling that the books are being cooked by somebody who has a political intention in mind before they sit down in front of it and make a proposal. And, uh, and so you see, uh, you see Ethereum and blockchain as playing a significant role in this? Uh, yeah, I certainly do. I certainly do. Because, you know, at the end of the day, when we start saying provably fair, to all intents and purposes, that means Ethereum, right? There isn't really any other, you know, computing surface out there that gives you provably fair, you know, for free as an option. So at that point, you know, why shouldn't we start looking at this as a way of solving the problems that democracy was unable to solve? International cooperation past a certain level has turned out to be impossible using the tools that the international community have tried so far. What happens if we Into do USPS? <laughs> and, you know, eventually the UN is going to catch on that this blockchain stuff might provide all the tools that they need to get a whole new round of thinking done. And in the same way that the blockchain hugely reinvigorated libertarian politics, I think the next phase is a similar reinvigoration of globalism, both inside of the existing international organization framework, but perhaps much more excitingly outside of that framework as the notion that we could you know, create and construe something that looked like a global government that actually served the people. I, I, think, that's, uh, I think that wraps it up quite nicely there. Good episode. That was really fun. <laughs> this has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email contact at etherreview.info or follow us on Twitter at etherreview.info.